I'm Joel Parker, and this is How on Earth, the science show from KGNU. Today is Tuesday, April 5th, 2016. Coming up, Conference of World Affairs panelists David Grinspoon and Sidney Perkowitz talk about, well, whatever comes to mind about the universe, space travel, aliens, and such things one ponders when one looks up at the stars. Today's show of How on Earth is a special edition produced in conjunction with the Conference on World Affairs, being held this week in Boulder, hosted by the University of Colorado. This is the 68th year of what longtime participant Roger Ebert called the Conference of Everything Conceivable. Over 100 panelists come together to spend a week discussing far-raging topics in arts and sciences, journalism and media, culture and society, health, politics, economics, the human condition, and give performances in dance and music. Quite the amazing smorgasbord, and all free and open to the public. As part of the conference, today's How on Earth has two of the participants as our guests, astronomer David Grinspoon and physicist Dr. Sidney Perkowitz. The topic of the show is Across the Universe. You can't get there from here. In keeping with the traditional format of the conference panels, our guests will start by talking about their interpretation of the topic, and we'll go from there to see where in the universe we end up. So, let's begin with Dr. Sidney Perkowitz who is a professor emeritus of physics at Emory University, where he has researched the optical properties of condensed matter, including semiconductors and superconductors, and biological materials. He is a well-known author, particularly presenting science for non-scientists in books such as Empire of Light, a History in Science and Art, Universal Foam from Cappuccino to the Cosmos, and Hollywood Science, Movies, Science, in the end of the world. He co-created a performance dance piece called Albert and Isadora and has written for stage and screen. He also once wrote an article titled Real Physicists Don't Wear Ties, and we have evidence of that exactly here in the studio. So, Sydney, welcome to How on Earth. Thank you so much, Joel. It's a pleasure to see you. Good morning, David. Good morning. co-partner. All the listeners out there, and who knows, maybe some aliens even will hear the show, which would be wonderful. Well, we are beaming out there. <laughs> if they're lucky, if they're lucky, if they're they lucky. will get this. I'd even put on a tie for a real alien. Mm, okay. <laughs> so, Sydney, would you like to start with your riff on Across the Universe? We can't get there from here. I'd be delighted to do it. And, you know, as soon as I heard the title, what I wanted to talk about popped into my mind. I've been writing lately about interstellar travel, which, believe it or not, actually even gets a tiny bit of U.S. federal government funding. 
amazing story, but true. So to me, here to there means we're here, the Earth. How do we get there, the rest of the universe? We've gone the tiniest baby step, by which I mean we've sent humans to the moon. And we've gone further than that through our artificial representatives, by which I mean we've sent robot spacecraft to the edge of the solar system, and even one that's now finally getting out into interstellar space. But can we get ourselves out there to the rest of the universe? That's the question. The differences are so huge that it's a major topic. Now, what do you mean by a huge distance? Well, NASA is already talking about getting us to Mars. That would be the next slightly bigger baby step. That's a trip of about 36 million miles, much further than to the moon, but NASA thinks they can do it, maybe even by the 2030s, so that's possible. But the nearest star is so much further that it's simply mind-boggling. The nearest star we can get to in a, in a bunch of stars called the Centauri stars, Alpha Centauri, Proxima Centauri, is a bit over four light years, which is several trillion miles. At the fastest speed that our spacecraft can now go, a typical NASA spacecraft, I mean, a trip there would take many, many thousands of years. So we don't really have a way to put a, a crew, no matter how heroic or dedicated, strap them into a spaceship and say, go, you'll be there in a little while. You need to think of different ways to try to reach even the nearest star. And one idea that's come up, it's an old science fiction idea, and my, uh, my new best bud, David, here, will explain a little bit more about how it might work, but I'll just toss out the idea. It's called the Generation Spaceship. And the idea is it's a, really a giant structure. We're talking about a city built in steel and aluminum and titanium that will support hundreds or maybe even thousands of people on a multi-century voyage to the nearest star. Generations will be born and die. A society will form and function or not function. They'll create food, water, whatever they need to make the trip happen. Science fiction idea, is it possible? Maybe. Another answer might be to give up on the idea of sending ourselves as living bodies, but send great representatives, maybe robot representatives who, okay, it'll take them 10,000, 40,000 years to reach a star, but eventually our ancestors will at least see some pictures of a different world. Or maybe even send ourselves, but not yet as fully grown people. One very imaginative idea is to load a spacecraft with what it takes to create new human beings maybe cloned versions of us in an infantile form, maybe even sperm and eggs that can be brought, to, brought together to create a human being. So eventually you have a generation of people who have lived, arrived in good condition at a distant star. What will be there when we get there? We always talk about re reaching the stars, and in fact it's an old, old dream. Um, if you look at the... Uh, inspirational mottos from every kind of organization, universities, companies, countries, you'll often see the phrase ad astra in them, meaning to the stars. But getting to the star itself is not the whole story. You want to hope there's a planet there. So the reason to go is, can we find planets there? Do the planets have something valuable to offer us? Do they maybe even have other kinds of life form that we would like to meet? Or maybe there's a dark side. Maybe we'd be better off if we did not meet them. And rather a long-term dream, but you can't completely dismiss it. If the human race reaches the point where it really threatens its own existence, wouldn't it be important to have other places to go? So those are some of the motivations from sheer adventure to practical backup for the future of the human, for the future of the human race. Now, what are the chances of finding life out there at a different, a different star? Well, in our own solar system, one thing we found, much to our surprise, 
unlike what we thought maybe 30 years ago, there's a lot more water around the solar system than we thought. Just within the last six months, we found flowing water on the surface of Mars, which would have been unbelievable even 30 or 40 years ago. So there's water here. Is there water in other solar systems? The answer is perhaps yes, because there's some recent evidence that when you see water in a solar system like ours, it goes all the way back almost to the origin of the universe. One of the things formed then was ice. That ice eventually became the water in our solar system, and maybe even in a solar system 4, 10, or maybe, maybe even a billion light years away. So there's hope. It's a long way from saying we know we're going to find these people. I'm really not giving odds that any aliens are listening to me right now. But I think you can keep 1% of hope that something is really up there. And that hope climbs a little more every year as we learn more and more about the universe. So maybe that's enough to give you my image of it. And now maybe you'll hear from my counterpart. Well, <laughs> thank you very much, Sydney, for, for that and some thought-provoking ideas there. So let me introduce our next speaker. It's Dr. David Grinspoon. He is a senior scientist at the Planetary Science Institute. He is an astronomer, or perhaps more specifically, an astrobiologist, which is a person who studies life or the possibility of life on other planets. In 2013, he was appointed the inaugural chair of astrobiology at the U.S. Library of Congress. And he previously was at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science, where he held what I think was the best job title I've ever heard, Curator of Astrobiology. So, welcome to How on Earth, David. Thanks a lot, Joel. Um, it, this is really a pleasure for me to be here, back in Boulder, at KGNU, and at the Conference on World Affairs, getting to meet fun people like, like Sydney. Um, and by the way, for those of you uh, who are just listening on the radio and can't see us, uh, Sydney's right, real physicists don't wear ties. And, but not only that, it's stranger. He and I are dressed exactly the same today. <laughs> and, and, and you and didn't, didn't call today and work we, this no, out, No, we didn't right? plan this. And, no. and in general, there's not like a scientist uniform, but right, we but both have today, black pants, striped right. shirts, and black jackets <laughs> and no tie. So um, I guess we're just on the same wavelength. So that's good. That's good. Um, I just wanted to give you a quick visual. So, um, <laughs> we the, won't talk about yeah. how I'm dressed here. Now, the, fir <laughs> the first thing I want to say, given the topic that Joel has so deftly defined, is Jai Guru Deva Om, which I don't actually know what that means, but when, when John Lennon um, sings it and, and when Rufus Wainwright sings it, it just sounds so cosmic that I figured I had to <laughs> work that in somehow. So I get it, get it there right off the bat. Clock get it in there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you can't get there from here, uh, across the universe. Um, as, what does that phrase evoke for, for uh, someone like me who thinks about astrobiology and the possibility of life elsewhere and how it relates to life on Earth? Well, as um, Sydney has so, so capably described, the stars are so incredibly far away that even for those of us who like to uh, think cosmically and who are used to uh, the idea of interplanetary travel, what I do for a living is largely help with interplanetary spacecraft and interpreting the data and figuring out the stories of the planets in our own solar system. But the idea of traveling across that gulf to the other stars even for those of us who are, you know, rocket scientists and born and lived in the space age, it's really daunting. And we don't like to say anything's impossible because, you know, Arthur C. Clarke's dictum that whenever a, you know, an aging scientist says something is impossible, he's almost always wrong. And uh, one can, as Sidney described, think of possible ways to do it. 
that some future or very advanced alien civilization might be able to follow. There are ways to live within the laws of physics and get to the other stars, even the laws of physics we know. And there's always the possibility that there's some we don't know. Um, one would say the probability in the long run. But, um, but can we do it? I think the answer is we could do it, but we would have to become something else in the process. One aspect of this, this notion of the stars being so far away you know, when we compare the the, time, the distances and the times required based on any reasonable velocities, as Sydney was describing, you come up with time scales for travel that are just so much longer than our own lifetimes. You know, we naturally think of things that uh, can happen within a hundred years or something as something that's feasible to do and something that takes a million years as something that's just ridiculous because we don't live anything like a million years or even, you know, a thousand years. It's, it becomes untenable. But maybe that perception that the stars are so far away then has to do with some limitation of our own temporal reality. Maybe we think they're so far away because we are so short-lived. Uh, imagine if our lifespan was the same as, say, a giant sequoia tree or something like that, if we could live for thousands and thousands of years, then maybe the stars wouldn't seem quite so far away for us. Mm. Um, and so one way to think about this is, well, maybe human longevity will change in the future, or maybe we are too hung up on thinking about individual life times. If you think of the lifetime of a society or a group of people, a clan, a family, and then, you know, if you once we start adopting a, a multi-generational time scale, then maybe the stars are less far away. And that gets to the idea that, that Sydney mentioned that I want to expound upon just a little bit of this generationship concept. And it's something that, that science fiction writers have... Uh, have used as a device to solve this problem of we want people to go to the stars, but we don't know how to get them there. Well, what if you had an expedition where the people who are eventually going to get to this planet around another star are not the same people who set out, they're the descendants of the people who set out. And you build a ship, it's almost, using the word ship isn't quite a vast, a, a quite, quite, a, quite a correct description of what this would be. It would be a self-enclosed um, city or something even bigger than a city uh, where generations of people could live out their lives and be comfortable and, and stimulated and uh, you equip it with um, the, the right infrastructure and um, the you know physical uh, you take care of the physical needs so that many generations could live and die and give birth to new generations on the ship and eventually some generation would reach that star. This is something that, you know, it's you we can imagine it doesn't break any laws of physics. It's it's sort of a shocking thing to consider in some ways, you know, that we would commit our children and our children's children to to a venture that they didn't sign on for. Um, is that morally okay? Is it really physical physically uh, feasible? Uh, are there problems with genetic inbreeding and stuff? People have analyzed this from a lot of interesting points of view. But I've been thinking of it, it's, you know, it's an interesting way to solve this potential problem of interstellar travel. I, I've been thinking of it a lot recently because I think it's also an interesting metaphor for our current situation here on Earth. In that, 
Uh, I've well, I've just I, I'm going to make a little plug. I've just finished a book that's coming out later this year called Earth in Human Hands, and that is my take from an astrobiologist's point of view on, on what people are calling the Anthropocene. This time, this new geological time, this new time of Earth history we've entered, that. Uh, is characterized by humanity as a geological force. It's another way of looking at ourselves and our role on the planet. We have now become one of the, whether we like it or not, whether we deserve it or not, whether it's a good idea or not, we have become sort of one of the great forces of nature. We're changing this planet and we need to get a handle on ourselves. And a lot of the ways we tend to think of that, we get really down on ourselves and we have these very negative metaphors. We're a cancer on the earth, we're a virus, we're a scourge. Uh, you know, there's a truth to all that when you look at some of what we're doing. But I'm not sure those negative metaphors are really helpful for us thinking about our future and the role that we want to play. And so I've tried to think of some other metaphors, and I keep being drawn back to to this uh, vision of a generation ship. The classic science fiction story of a generation ship, uh, usually, and there's a couple of good ones. There's uh, Orphans of the Sky by Robert Heinlein. There's one called Nonstop by Brian Aldiss. And they're really fun stories. And And... There's sort of a common plot where uh, the people are on this generation ship, but something's gone wrong, and there's been a mutiny or a revolution or a breakdown, and some generation is completely completely unaware that they're on a ship and that they're on their way to another star. They just think this is the world, and there are hulls and there are um, forests inside the ship, and there are this this is the way the world is. And then somebody, our heroes, the main protagonists figure out that they're on a ship and that they're on a construct and that they're actually going somewhere. And furthermore, something has gone wrong. And the only way they're going to be able to save everybody, all of humanity, which is for all they know, everybody on the ship, and that's all, um, the only way that this can be fixed is if they wake everybody up to the reality. And they go around and say, hey, everybody, our world is not what we thought it was. We're all on the ship going somewhere together. And not only that, we have to figure out how this thing works and learn to drive it or we're all doomed. And to me, I think of our situation on Earth now. It's like, yeah, we can get down on ourselves or we can also realize that, hey, we've gotten ourselves into this situation we didn't really uh, intend to. We find ourselves sort of in charge of a world or at least uh, having big control over what happens to this planet, but nobody, we don't have a manual, we don't know how to run a planet, um, but we have to figure it out. So we're sort of driving this ship, and we have to learn how to drive this ship. We learn have to learn how to be good stewards of the Earth, and uh, the intergenerational aspect of it is very interesting to me also with this metaphor, because uh, we can blame our ancestors and say, how did, how did we get into this mess? Uh, but for our own sake and the sake of future generations, uh, the blame doesn't really help. We're in the situation we're in. We have to figure it out, not just for the sake of humanity, but for the sake of the rest of life. So uh, we're on a generation ship, um, and <laughs> we have to become something else in order to do a good job with our situation, we have to learn to think multi-generationally and have some intentionality about wh what we're doing here on this spaceship Earth, which is, again, the problem of reaching the stars. If you realize that you're not just an in individual, but you identify with being part of this multi-generational entity of human beings that are hopefully going somewhere, then the stars are not so far away, and the idea of being part of a project that will take thousands of years um, is not impossible 
because you're not alone. You have the, the future generations and your ancestors to draw upon. And um, just like those people trying to get to another star, we are trying to get to a good future on Earth. And I, I think that it's the same, ultimately the same problem. If we learn how to conduct ourselves well here on Earth, we can build a civilization and have a planet that will be um, stable and equitable for thousands of years. And that will also make it possible for us to ultimately reach the stars. I, I love that metaphor of the Earth as a generational ship. Uh, it really puts in better perspective the care that we have to take here. Also brings into the question, was there someone who made this ship? But <laughs> so Yeah, and that's, that's the part of the metaphor where I go, wait a minute. But there's a certain sense in which we've made it. Now, obviously... Uh, it wasn't we've modified it. Maybe it wasn't originally a construct, it. but we but right. we have uh, we've constructed we've on it. For constructed sure. the aspects right. of it that now we have to figure out how to either deconstruct or mold into a more sustainable uh, structure. We weren't you given know, the operating instructions. Right. Exactly. Right. Exactly. You, you know what's funny though? You, that metaphor actually brings in the U.S. government in a way, believe it or not, and maybe not the way you think. So I mentioned before. The federal government does put a little money into the idea of building a starship. Uh, DARPA, which is the research arm of the Department of Defense, has funded now for three or four years an annual conference called the 100-Year Starship. DARPA itself is not necessarily interested in going to the stars, but they know that when you get smart people thinking about stuff, good ideas come out that also the military can use. Whether you like the military or not, that's how DARPA works. And one of the ideas for the 100-year starship is, indeed, we need to work together for 100 years at least to even begin to get this project off the ground. So the idea of building a cooperative social structure is actually quite built into the whole deal even before the starship ever gets launched. Well, this that's, is, that's funny, it, and it's also it, funny that, that that would be a spinoff of a military is, effort. Isn't is, that funny? We may all learn to live together. Un, and therefore, ultimately, maybe not need a military. That's, <laughs> that, they, they may be shooting themselves in the foot. Well, but you, in, 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 in a nice way. In, in the best possible way. <laughs> yeah. But you never know where undirected research will go, and this is one great example of it. And just to add one more funny little fact, so when this has been discussed at these 100-year Starship meetings, People ask, well, what kind of long-term social structure could we build that would guarantee generation to generation? The answer usually is the Catholic Church. So all the scientists and all the military end up saying, that's a great structure, at least for certain kinds of applications. Well, that's a really interesting thought, because when, when, I, uh, when I do think of um, how can we... Uh, devised structures that last for so long. You think of, you can't help but think of, well, what have we done? We've built cathedrals. Right. People. So exactly. when, when you have some worldview that makes you feel attached to something that it becomes realized beyond your your uh, your own lifespan. Now, I'm not um, personally a religious person right, in the conventional right, sense, right. but I do appreciate that there are aspects of that kind of worldview that if we integrate them into our abil our attempts to solve our human predicaments, um, that that longevity that results will be very beneficial. One last question for you both. Would you volunteer for a generational starship? Well, I think I'm on one, but um, <laughs> but yeah, if there was if they but you had, didn't volunteer if they had a good sound system <laughs> and uh, you know uh, all the right uh, provisions and people that I liked, sure, I'd go. With the right bunch of people, I would go. I think that's the key, key, key thing. So I want to know who else is aboard with me. Well, maybe we can... I'll, I'll go with if you guys, if you two are done. on. Right. We'll, we'll, we'll bring the Conference of World Affairs with us. CWA and have in space. We got it now. Well, I would like to thank 
astrobiologist David Grinspoon and physicist Sidney Perkowitz. You can keep up with them. Uh, Dr. Grinspoon on his website at funkyscience.net and with Dr. Perkowitz on his website at sydneyperkowitz.net. And if you want to find out more about the Conference of World Affairs, listen to archived recordings of panels. If you can't be there in person, you can check it all out at www.colorado.edu slash CWA. Thank you, David, and thank you, Sydney. Thank you Thanks both. a lot, Joel. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Shelley Schlender. This week's show was produced and engineered by yours truly, Joel Parker. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Rufus Wainwright. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Do you have questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303 303- Four four seven ninety nine eleven for How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Joel Parker.